Welcome to the Never Stop Moving Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Nowacki. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Let's get it. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Never Stop Moving Podcast, powered by Elevate Physical Therapy and Human Performance. Today, we've got a pretty awesome guest that I'm really excited about. Uh, we got Dr. Dustin Grooms, or Dusty, as most of the rehab world calls him. Uh, he is a, a professor at Ohio University. He's got his PhD in neuroscience and biomechanics. Um, and beyond that, I, I think I'd rather let you do the, your introduction, Dustin. Uh, just kind of maybe talk to us a little bit about who you are, what you do, kind of your story uh, to get you to this point in time. I know you've got some a pretty interesting adventure uh, and one that's super interesting. So thank you so much for coming on today. I'm excited for our talk and uh, yeah, just let us have uh, kind of let us know about yourself. Thanks for the opportunity, Kevin. Um, would you come up with the name, by the way, Never Stop Moving? Would you that? There was an old... Uh, I, a PT or Cairo who kind of use that saying all the time, uh, talk about never stop moving. And I think it, it's one of those things that, um, we talk about all the time where as we live in such a sedentary life and kind of this world of technology moving forward, it's one of those things that's so easy to stop moving. And it's kind of a nice, easy slogan to kind of just talk about the importance of movement and health. And, uh, it, it kind of encapsulates kind of what we believe in as, as a company um, to kind of work around health and, and fitness in general. I just really like the name. Yeah, thank you. Maybe think like I'll give I'll give my introduction to a second, but there was a really, yeah. really cool series of studies in like the late '90s, early 2000s, where they NIH funded all these different lifestyle factors, like to prevent diabetes, prevent all-cause mortality, heart disease. And the effect sizes for exercise is the highest of anything. So if you exercise five days a week, 30 minutes, it's extremely powerful to prevent all sorts of disease. And then, but pharmaceutical companies always will publish, like they'll compare two drugs, right? And they'll say, this new drug is very expensive, um, has a bigger effect than the other drugs, a little bit better. But they never compare them against just like lifestyle change, which is exercise or moving mm -hmm. a lot. And it always, it's sort of disappointing that the standard to beat isn't movement because that wins almost every time. Yeah. And so I just really like that, that title. And I just thought that was pretty interesting. No, I appreciate that. And, and, and even thinking of like, you know, certain exercise model or treatment modalities for that matter, you know, you look at uh, different things like uh, laser therapy or ultrasound or um, different massage techniques or whatever it may be. And, you know, some of the benefits are like increased blood flow, uh, you know, you might get some mitochondrial adaptations and it's, it's like always seems to be, comes back to like, you know, what else gets those things plus, you know, systemic benefits and all these other benefits is, is movement and exercise. Uh, and it, it should kind of be the standard of care. And maybe that's, you know, we're, we're kind of pushing that and trying to get to that direction. But uh, I, I think it's a good kind of slogan to kind of remind people that it's always comes back to, you know, staying fit, staying healthy, uh, to live the best, best lifestyle. That's wonderful. So, so how I got to do what I do today, and I got to interact with you as a physical therapy student, Kevin, was I started out um, not really knowing what I want to do, like almost everyone who graduates high school and you're kind of lost. And so I started, I was, uh, I kind of just picked what makes the most money. So I go through the list in the course catalog and I'm like, well, computer science at the time, so I graduated high school in 2003, 
that was like a big thing. And I thought, well, I could graduate in four years, be done with school forever because I didn't like school that much and get a job. And so, and I was about a year into it. And the professor goes, if you don't get excited with staring in front of a computer all day and writing code, you can do something else. I was like, well, I need to do something else. And uh, I was trying to figure it out. So then I found athletic training and the job was pretty cool. So athletic training, you'd spend most of your time outside. You get to go with sports, you get to cover teams. And then you're doing rehab and exercise when you're inside. And the paperwork burden is not always as high as this for physical therapists. You, know, right. you guys have spent a lot of time documenting. So you get away with a little more. Probably shouldn't be getting away with more. That's a whole different conversation, maybe. But it was a really fun job. And so as a, as a college kid, I went into that. I had a great time. You learned a lot about rehabilitation, learned a lot of kinesiology, anatomy. And then I thought, well, I'll just go do this job for a while. And so I did my master's degree at University of Virginia. After that, so my undergrad was at Northern Kentucky University because I grew up near Cincinnati. And then everyone tells you you have to have a master's degree if you want to work in the college setting or higher. And I thought, well, this is the funnest setting, so this is where I want to go. Right. So I went to UVA, and I worked with the wrestling team there, um, which was a great experience. And then I went to a little D3 school in Cincinnati. I worked there for a few years. I'm treating my patients, and I worked with soccer, wrestling, track and field there. And so every year you get, like, one kid on your soccer team is going to blow up their knee. Um, and one year we had a couple. And so I thought I was going to do great rehabilitation. It's probably what, like, every physical therapy, athletic training, any rehab professional, I'd say even physician, anyone coming out of their school, they probably think, well, I'm going to be a great clinician because I was taught very well. I'm going to save everyone. Right. Right. And I think our evidence-based education model makes you think that because you think, well, this is the evidence. I treat X condition with Y therapy and everyone's going to get better. So that's what I'm told. And then you do that. And then you do your return to sport test. And you're like, hey, this guy's ready to go. I did everything right. Looks great. And you return to sport. And a week or two later, they go out and change direction. They blow out their other knee. And that only has to happen to you a couple times before it really wears on you as a person. Yeah. And I think it's really hard, especially one thing that's unique about athletic training, really physical therapy is athletic training you kind of get to know so you're assigned a team usually and so you go to every practice you're covering all the events so you get to know them you spend hours a day with these kids and then a lot of times you run injury prevention training so i might do like a neuromuster warm-up with the team and help them get ready and so you really get to know these individuals and then they go down on the field in a game or a practice so you run out there you're the first person they see you get them off the field you take them to the physician's office and you get, and then you take them to their surgery. You do all their post-op care. You do all the rehabilitation. You do the return support test. So everything's really kind of on you. And you really bond with the person. You spend so much time with them. And then to have them re-injure, it's heartbreaking. And I don't think it's, it's probably really not that much different. Any rehabilitation profession is going to be very hard because you have to spend a lot of time with your patients. So even if you're physical therapy, you only see your patient a couple times a week, you're still seeing them way more than any other healthcare provider that there is. And so sort of regardless of where you're at in the phase of care, any rehabilitation professional, I think you want to feel more ownership over the outcome than anybody else. And so to let them down, I think is very disappointing. So that happens a couple of times. And so I was lucky. My master's program really trained us to be scholarly clinicians. So you go to the literature of a question, which means yeah. you type your question into PubMed and you see what happens. <laughs> That's what it means to be a scholarly clinician, sure. an evidence-based clinician. So you do that and... 
I remember I was like, well, I must have forgot to do something. And then you're trying to figure out where who's doing this kind of research. And so Lynn Snyder-Mackler at Delaware is, is the premier scientist for, for this area for ACL reconstruction and, and rehabilitation. But she's retired now, but she's a legend. And look at some of her work. And they're returning people to sport. Their re-injury rate could be as high as one in three, one in four, one in five. And they're at the best place on the planet to get their rehabilitation. And so I'm like, what am I missing? What am I doing wrong? And so um, I couldn't really take, it was kind of hard intellectually and emotionally to deal with these failures. And so I said, well, maybe I can figure this out. So I go to do a PhD. So I'm like, and I look around where I could go, end up going to Ohio State. And PhD is kind of weird. So I went there because I liked my advisor. His name was Dr. Renati. He was interested in motor control, motor learning, but mostly screening. So his primary funding was to develop a test you could do to predict who was going to get hurt. So I thought this is great. If you could find that test, that means we could find out what to train. And then this would be a pathway to fix the problem. And so I'm up there and I'm learning a lot about biomechanics. That's the primary tool most of our tests are based around. They're based around how people move. So if you're familiar with the FMS, stuff like that, they're all movement yep. tests. And then while I'm there, there's all these studies showing our movement tests really don't predict injury very well at all. And then he had this very large study from the NIH to try to revamp musculoskeletal physical exams. And so the classic physical exam is like you go to the physician, right? And he like hits you with the reflex hammer, test your strength really quick, and you're done. If that, like the, the pre-predation physical exam is not great at predicting really anything. And so he's like, well, maybe if I add a few of these functional tests to this exam, we could better predict who's at risk. And so we did a hop test, uh, a balance test, and then a landing test. And he gathered uh, over like three to four years I was there. He had a couple other PhD students and some other personnel. And we went around the country and we collected about 8,000 kids and then tracked their injuries for a season. And what we found was those tests didn't predict anything. And what predicted you getting hurt was the more exposures you had. If you played more, you're more likely to get hurt. And so there's actually this weird phenomenon where the people who did really well on those tests, they actually had a little bit higher risk because they played a lot. So you're mm -hmm. best athletes. So right. actually exposure dictated everything. So this is very disappointing because you're like, well, all of the stuff we've thought about for the last 30 years in our field, that movement and how someone moves is going to predict their injury risk has turned out not to work. But being the clinician, you're like, well, there's something going on physiologically sure. that we're not capturing. So I kept thinking about these non-contact injury events that you would have. So you'd watch a kid, you know, do all his therapy, do everything right, and he plants his leg into his change direction, and the ligament ruptures. So if it's not a movement we can see, that means something's going on in the muscle synergies. So what muscle synergies are, they're just the timing and sequence of your muscles activate. So like right before you hit the ground, you know, a few milliseconds before you hit the ground, certain muscles will turn on to stabilize your joints. Like if your muscles didn't turn on, you would blow out your ligaments constantly, right? Because the ligaments have handled the load or you'd fracture everything because the muscles can right. handle the load. Because they have to turn on at precise moments with precise intensity. And so then you're looking, well, what controls muscle synergies? Well, then you look in, well, the nervous system. So your spinal cord and your brain is what dictates your ability to contract muscles at a very precise time. And so that's when I switched from biomechanics to neuroscience. And that's put me on this path since like 2013 when I switched to try to better understand how the brain is adapting and the brain controls movement. And that's led me to this career so far. And that's how I met you. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that was one of the big things too, that I realized going through, you know, my, uh, my curriculum and professional development was most of these things were based around the biomechanics and right. Like we don't even have a true motor control course in our curriculum at OU. And, you know, you came and gave a couple guest lectures, which kind of how this stuff started to kind of click. Um, but we have to step back and realize that, the, I mean, clearly the brain and the nervous system run the show um, and, and acknowledge that the role that this plays in sport and, and injury uh, that is inevitable to happen. Um, so well, I, I think I want to jump into some of your research, but before we do that, uh, or like research you're doing now and things you've discovered, um, before we do that, I think I want to address kind of this big problem that I see in the industry with research and some of these things that you're kind of discovering. Um, and, and that being just kind of the gap between uh, the research that's done in the lab and then the implementation uh, in the clinic, which is, you know, ultimately the most important part. It's why you guys do research. It's why it's done. And I think, you know, when you guys spend so much time designing studies, being very meticulous in what you're measuring and how to set it up and, and, spending so all these time and resources on these studies, um, sometimes it doesn't get applied in the clinic very well, if at all, um, which I can imagine from your position would be pretty frustrating, um, but it also doesn't p push our profession forward and make it better and what we're looking to do. Um, and I know that there's a lot of good therapists out there that do stay up to date with research and do do a good job, so I don't mean to kind of knock what they're doing or um, those people, but... I guess I'm just curious in your opinion, um, and I think you do a great job, and this is a, one of your big motivations I've heard you say before, is to get this research into the clinic. Do it applicably, kind of speak about it in a way that clinicians can understand and can apply without increased time and resources. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts on how we can bridge this gap, uh, minimize this gap between the research world that is so important uh, and the clinical world where people may be uh, struggle to see where the relevance is or the, the ease of use from this research. A good, that's a good line of questions. The one thing I think is very hard in rehabilitation science is a lot of the stuff we do is conceptual based or it's how you prescribe the therapy or exercise. So there's no like massive pharmaceutical industry that stands to make billions of dollars off of how you, Kevin may prescribe a quad set. And so that can be a challenge and that there's not a lot of money to be made in excellent rehabilitation. Right. And so the other, the other part of it is rehabilitation research is very difficult to do. So if you want to do a, the gold standard, a lot of people use for randomized control trials are like placebo controlled drug studies, right? Well, those are the, probably the easiest clinical trial to possibly do. So there's always this, I don't know, this thought that um, drug studies are always designed very precisely. The FDA is highly involved and highly regulated, but rehabilitation studies are infinitely more complex. And it's almost, you see this a lot in actually the literature where they're always, people are always like, oh, well, we need our randomized controlled trials for everything, right? Randomized-based medicine, what people always say. And that's fair to say, but it's actually like a sophomoric naive concept. And so when you're learning, especially as a, like a new research student or PhD student, or even like a clinician going to like a scholarly program, randomized-based program, that you're always told. You're always told that's the gold standard. It'd be great to have RCTs for everything. Well, the idea that you're going to have an RCT for everything in rehabilitation is insane. So it's just never going to happen. So you think about everything you can manipulate in a single session for rehabilitation. 
So, you, have, you know, like what modalities you use, what intensity you use, the intensity of exercise, how many reps you get, what sort of feedback you get. And then we know your motor learning and how your neural system activates to do a task depend on how you set up the environment. There are studies showing that your performance will change for balance. You walk into a room and I let you pick the art on the wall. So when you're talking about this is just it's called autonomy of feedback. So if someone feels like they have autonomy or control over anything, their performance for the we usually go up due to this theorized dopamine regulation of performance. And so if you're like, well, based on just what is on the wall can manipulate some of your feet, some of your performance, it's almost impossible to do like an RCT on literally everything. And so a lot of the critiques people have um, when we talk when we talk about different ways to prescribe therapy is like, well, is there a clinical trial on all these different aspects? Well, there's not a clinical trial on everything you already do now. Right. And so a lot of what we do now is based on conceptual research, mostly from like the strength and conditioning world. And so like the muscle, how can you induce muscle hypertrophy is sort of dominated physical therapy forever. You just kind of prescribe the same exercises. But however, as your podcast indicates, physical therapy is a movement-based profession and you need enough strength to enable the movement. So like our end goal isn't just like larger muscles. We let the strength conditioning literature probably drive a lot of what we do. And I think you asked also how the research, sometimes it does get manipulated. So one issue I've had with translating the neuroscience work is the neuroscience, I mean, it hits a point. So I've studied it. So my PhD ended up being in neuroscience and I've been a professor since 2015. So I've been studying this a decade, give or take. And it'll hit a point for me where you're understanding the nervous system hits a point where I start to not, takes everything I have to barely understand some fundamental concepts. So there was just a paper in Nature that talked about central pattern generators and how they work. So we used to think that you had these groups in the spinal cord, right? And then you were engaged in flexion of one limb and then you would hit and you would cycle to the other limb. So the, the obvious intuitive thought would be, well, these neurons come up and these neurons are down, they just flip and you just rotate and that creates this pattern movement. And the paper actually showed that is not what happens whatsoever because there's a lot of fundamental issues with the neurophysiology with that sort of hypothesis. And actually the neural populations move in like this circular pattern. Um, it was very fascinating. It was a very elegant series of experiments to better understand. And it's this, um, this like cylinder of activity where they're like, ro it's rotary dynamics they talked about. So you picture mm. a cell or a bunch of neurons and you would picture like this part extends for this part flexors, but it's actually with, they're not generating the moves, but they're generating the whole pattern. And they're just like rotating sections for the entire movement. And so it's not like these are extensors, these are flexors, but it's like at this phase of the movement, this population turns on and it's a rotary dynamics, which solves a lot of issues in underlying neurophysiology. That is like everything I got to like right. comprehend it, right? Right. There's a lot of people who do that kind of work that are just on another level. And then to translate some of this to clinical practice has been sometimes challenging because we, we can get into the sum, but a lot of what we've discovered, it's actually a little more complicated and it's distilled down sometimes. And I think due to that complexity, I've seen a lot of people cite my work and then they'll use general terms and kind of junk terms to try to support some device or some technique or something that they're trying to do. Um, so that can be frustrating. Um, but I'm hoping the next generation will be better. So I, I would like to see physical therapy have maybe a motor control class or not be swindled with like these made up, um, you know, neural reactive dynamic type phrases that get thrown around a lot. Right. 
And I, I mean, I'm just thinking about how funny it is you say that, that it takes all of you or all of your mind who studied this for the past decade to, to understand some of those foundational concepts. But yet we still have, you know, um, clinicians are even worse, like some uh, fitness professional who don't understand these concepts and maybe do not apply them correctly, uh, that, that feel like, or express that they understand it at the highest level. Um, but then you go and ask you, this person who's been studying this for, for years and years. And you're like, I don't even think we know the whole picture at this point. And we don't, we don't know, we don't have all the answers. We don't understand the whole system. Uh, so it's just very confident. I'm always extremely skeptical. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cause I'm not that confident. And this is like, uh, what's there, there's that, what's it Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah. Like the the Dunning Kruger curve. The more confidence you have. Right. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. But when you're a clinician, like physical therapist to their credit for what they need for their applied setting, they could be extremely knowledgeable, but, yeah. um, the neurophysiology can get pretty, pretty intense. So, so I, I think that there's some resources out there that do a, a really good job at bringing this new research into the clinic and like giving it, making it digestible and, and not taking up all of your time where you have to read so many papers. Um, and I think that's a, a really good way uh, for people to kind of stay up to date with this research and, and start to implement it. Um, but there, are there any other ways? I mean, I guess some of it has to be you want to learn and you want to be better in your field. I think that's kind of a core component, but are there any other ways that you can have kind of hypothesized would be beneficial for, for clinicians who, you know, want to implement some of this stuff, but maybe have not been able to go through all the research and stay up to date or anything like that? I know it's tough. It's, uh, I wish there was a, where people have dedicated time to do it, to be like yeah. every clinician would have a certain amount of time, but it's sad. You have to be an updated clinician. You have to do almost do it on your own. Mm -hmm. And there's, I would recommend like there it's social media is sort of a mixed bag, right? Cause there's some people trying to put really good content out there. Like uh, Dave Sherman who graduated yep. from Toledo. He's now at Harvard PT ATC. He's trying really hard to solve this problem. And so he's trying to create, like he'll review like the week of science and neuro related PT orthopedics. He's going to give it to you in like a digestible one pager, you know, 10 articles or whatever he's doing. So he's trying his best to be a knowledge translator. Right. And ideally you have people like that. So like a lot of the harder science, like physics, you know, like Neil deGrasse Tyson and astrophysics is one of like the greatest science communicators of our generation. But we don't really have that as much for physical therapy necessarily. The problem is the field's fragmented, a lot of subdisciplines. Yep. But this sort of like implementation or bridging the gap, I think, there that's a whole body of science in and of itself, and we're gonna need really good people to do it. One thing I really wish the like the national organizations like the APTA or the NATA would do more of this. Like I don't know how many you might be a little young for it, Kevin, but I've been going to conferences for a long time and man, you just see the same stuff all the time. Like it's almost like just from your textbook, like we spend the field spends so much time telling you the basics again, that a lot of this extra stuff, I think gets missed. But the problem is you have a lot of people not doing very good basics. So maybe, yeah, you know, we're at, maybe we're talking at a different level. Like one thing I do worry about is people see some of our work and they'll like, well, think of your therapeutic time say you know i do a lot of acls right so say if i have these priorities i have range of motion i have pain control i have strengthening i have movement performance whatever you want and you might get 
too caught up with some of this other stuff and you might forget some of these other pieces. So I think that's a very real concern. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm being too optimistic to think we could bypass a lot of this, the basics of this. Maybe those aren't being done. I don't know. It's a good question. Kevin. Yeah, but I, I think it's important to at least, you know, and maybe that is a problem down the road, but at least starting to introduce people to kind of these concepts and, and different ways of thinking that, you know, maybe are a little bit different than the, the standard uh, of care that we learn in our in our classes that, you know, maybe is, is set back a few years of, of when those uh, studies were done and when the research was implemented and, and how it's taught to us. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, uh, it's just a big step to think about these things differently, see some of this research, and then even just have these conversations because uh, I think that we're kind of stuck in that bubble of, you know, uh, the biomechanical uh, bubble that we learn everything in and then only looking at it through that lens. Not to say that that's not important, but only looking at it through that lens. And um, uh, this is why I'm so excited about kind of this this neuroscience that you're you're learning and, and continuing to learn and now teaching to people uh, because it's so groundbreaking and and it makes you just step back and say, wow, how have we not considered this before? Or why are we not considering this more? Um, but I think, I think that's a good kind of segue to talk about your research and kind of what you have been working on for the past 10 years. Um, I, I think that, you know, we've talked so much about all these, these, you know, over the past couple of years that I've uh, known you, um, about kind of your research and things you've developed in the lab and, and, uh, you know, some realizations that you had about therapy. So I know you work at, mostly with ACLs and some concussions. Do you want to talk about just kind of, uh, ACL rehab, ACL injuries, uh, kind of just the things you've learned over the years and, and where you're going with it as well. And to the credit of like the biomechanical model, a lot of the stuff and the reason why it's only recently is because we didn't have the technology to measure it very well. Sure. Sure. And so if you get bored and you read a lot about like science or medical history, you'll find most of what we understand about science and medicine is due to limitations of our techniques. And like there was the old stuff like with Skinner and behavioralism and how, oh, we can't even measure the underlying nurse and you just have motor learning. It's just instead of inputs and we look at the outputs because mm -hmm. the nurse is a black box. People think what's happening there. Don't even worry about trying to study it. Well, it's because we really couldn't. We didn't really have good techniques, good options. And so people are always slow to change because if you're taught something, whatever you're sort of taught first usually becomes more ingrained. And then you have to like try to talk yourself out of it, come back. Mm -hmm. but if anyone has ever talked to someone, like if the first bit of information you get is incorrect, it's very difficult to change. And you probably hear with like a movement, you don't want to practice like bad technique first. It's very hard to correct it. Well, it's very similar with information. It's very hard to correct your initial information. And so the whole field's just been going through this. So we know that evidence is like 17 to 20 years or whatever the metric is of practice from discovery. A lot of it's because you have to have the next generation of educators learn that first and then they are more accepted to it and then they change their education. So the sadly, like Kevin, you going to physical therapy school, a lot of what you learn is dictated by your professors. Right. It's what they ever they learned like 10 to 20 years ago and they're going to be a little slower to change. And so I think to the credit, a lot of it was a measurement issue. And so for our lab to study ACL injury, when I started into neuroscience, I looked around and I was like, what are my best tools to measure the nervous system? And you think 10 years, you would think in hindsight, you'd be like, well, we should have made it a lot farther than we have now. And, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the one thing you learned very quickly is that research is very slow. And a lot of what you said, like, you would think, well, if I had this problem, 
I would just do all the RCTs and I have this solution by now. And that's just not, not how anything works. Um, everything's so much slower than you think it's going to be. But so I looked around with what technology do I have available that I could to learn to try to measure the nervous system. So at the time, in orthopedics in our area related to musculoskeletal injuries, um, this includes low back pain, ACL injury, ankle sprains, hip FAI. There were a few tools that were used a lot. The primary outcome was electromyography. So this put a sensor on the muscle and you record the electrical activity in the muscle. So what scientists would do is, because we're very reductionist people, is uh, we would use stimulation techniques. And so stimulation techniques are great because I give a, if you picture like Russian stem or any sort of muscle stem, I give it X amount of electricity and then I record the amount of electricity out of out from the EMG or the electromyography, right? So it's very tightly controlled. And then we can infer something happened if the stimulation goes down. And we could figure out, well, what pathway do we excite? And then what synapses are on that pathway? That must be where we're losing electricity. Then we get an idea of how much inhibition you have because the amount of inhibition you have should be correlated with the amount of lost electricity. So the classic technique to first measure the nervous system was called the H-reflex or the Hoffman reflex. That's when you would stimulate, so if we're talking about the quadriceps, you would stimulate the uh, tibial nerve. You should always stimulate distal. So you stimulate tibial nerve, flips the femoral nerve to the spinal cord. So you'd stimulate distal to the muscle of interest, and you'd get the muscle um, activity right away because you'd stimulate that nerve. And you remember from your uh, studies, the e, the, when you stimulate, it just goes everywhere. So activate the afferents and the efferents. Right. So you get muscle contraction. Then you have this, it actually goes up to the spinal cord, comes back down, you get another muscle contraction. The difference between the two is how much the spinal cord knocks down the signal, you get an idea of how much spinal regulated inhibition you have. So most of the time, people, the signal gets knocked down like 70%, you get quite a bit knocked down the spinal cord, because most of your neurons actually function to inhibit movement. So almost everything is designed to stop movement or delay things, because that's usually when you get the trouble. So smooth coordinated movement isn't so much about what's activating, but about what's not activating. So anyway, so the spinal cord knocks on the signal by about 70%, so you get 30% reach the muscle. And people could figure out, it's like, well, after injury, this is higher. There's more inhibition of the spinal cord. So there's something right. going on there. And people are like, well, that was in like the 80s and early 90s. So Lynn Sander Macklin did some of that original work in Delaware, and Chris Ingersoll um, is now a dean in Florida, but then some other you know people um, in that time. And then people were like, well, the spinal cord is only a piece of the nerve system. What's going on above that? So there's this technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So we take magnetic coil, you stimulate the motor cortex of the area you're interested in, and you record how much it makes it down to the muscle. Less make it down, more inhibition you have at the cortex. So we have this idea, well, maybe the brain is inhibiting some of the movement. So there's some studies that go on. Looks like that is the case. Cortical excitability um, is a little bit lower after the injury as well, which means that you should, in theory, require more neural activity in the brain to overcome the spinal inhibition and the cortical inhibition. So now the problem with those studies are is they're very tightly controlled and you can assay the pathway that's happening and you get a very precise measure of excitability of a neuron, but just to give you an idea of what the brain is doing to actually generate movement. So what we know is that your nervous system really evolved to facilitate movement. Almost everything in your brain is there to allow you to move. So the reason why you have a frontal cortex to help you plan movement, visual cortex to help you navigate the world, because if you stop moving, you die. That's Most right. of the time. So that's uh, to, for your podcast there. That's right. So you look at the techniques you have available there. So we have a couple. So we have EEG, which measures superficial cortical activity. 
It's like that big net you, you would wear. The problem with that is if you can't really see what the legs are doing, you lose cerebellum, you lose some deep cortical structure, so it's not the ideal tool. So then we have this tool called fMRI, which is what our lab ended up using. So fMRI is just like a regular MRI, but lay in the tube. So your big limitation, number one, you gotta lay in a tube. So that sucks. Number two is your head can't move more than a millimeter. So that double sucks. And then you can barely do any movement. So I'm interested in how you move. And this looks like a really good tool because I get the whole brain. It captures data pretty fast. I get an idea of what everything's doing. But you can't move your head. So up until this point, there's only been two or three studies on the whole planet that have tried to do like leg, lower extremity movements in the MRI. Most of them are cognitive tasks or vision tasks. You do some upper body stuff, but there's not a whole lot of sensory motor control work. And so I read those studies like 30 times, the handful that are out there, and I'm like, well, how could I possibly try to do this? And so my advisor, Dr. Renati, he, um, not a neuroscientist uh, by any means, but he had some motor control, motor learning experience. Um, his dissertation was actually giving people different feedback and trying to see how they move, how they land in front of um, which is pretty interesting, and it all comes full circle because that's kind of how you would change brain activation patterns or movements, you change your feedback. But he, I'll never forget because he was uh, very kind and very forgiving and because he let me do this. So this is kind of a big risk for him. So normally when you do a PhD, you really study what your mentor is doing and it's very a little bit more controlled. And he let me try to learn neuroscience and learn this technique, which is um, a little complicated. And he wasn't able to mentor me as much as it's not his area. But he gave me the space, he gave me the opportunity to do it. So I'll always be in debt to him for letting me, let me go down this path. This is a risk for him. Could, it could have messed up. <laughs> so we spent, it took me about a year to figure out how to get constraints of the person's body just to, for them to kick their leg and do like a short arc exercise. And there's a lot of technical stuff that goes into it, but eventually we got something working and we got some ACLs and we got some controls when we do it. And at first, I'm thinking, well, we might detect these subtle changes in the nerves. It's a very simple movement. You know, it's just like 30, 40 degree knee extension. And these are all people who returned to sport. They're pretty high-level athletes. Some, some of them were on the Ohio State some of the sports teams. So they were very good. So they weren't like your patients aren't doing well. So these were people that looked normal. Now, I wanted these patients in particular because that's what me as a therapist I was most upset with. Like the people who never recover quadriceps strength, or have poor outcomes, or don't recover range of motion, you know what's wrong with them. Right. You need to improve the strength, improve the range of motion, whatever it is. But it's the people that seem to do well that we fail that I was interested in. But the risk of that is in science is that if it's too similar to your control group, then you're less likely to find an effect. And so you open yourself up to a risk that, that you won't see anything. And so we do it, and the brain activation pattern is drastically different. So this was my first study in like 2014, um, and we just looked at this ACL group and the control group, we find that they have depressed cerebellar activity. So cerebellum lets you, so I'm right now I'm standing and I'm talking to you. So the reason why I don't have to dedicate any neural, a lot of my conscious neural focus to stand is also due to my cerebellum. It lets me automatically correct for make subtle postural adjustments. It lets you do a lot of sensory motor prediction and timing. So it's sort of like you think of it like your automatic control center. So that's depressed. The ACL patients aren't using that. Instead, they're using their cortex, their motor, especially their motor cortex to move. So it's like the opposite strategy you want with your legs. And they also bring online these other sensory areas, which allow you to process proprioception and vision together. 
And so there was some interesting data before this where people had found that if you mess with ACL people's vision, they actually do a little worse. But no one really like connected the dots. They're like, oh, you lose some proprioception <coughs> and maybe it's the rehabilitation. But no one really thought about it much. There's actually this really cool paper. Um, Eva Agberg is from Sweden. She's a Swedish physiotherapist researcher. She had this paper in the 90s where she had this similar idea. So what's really cool in science is a lot of times you think you're like brilliant and you come with something first, but there's other like people who thought of it before you usually it's how it goes. Actually, it's a, probably a good sign because if you're the only one with the idea, it might not be that good an idea. Right. So, but anyway, so she had these patients and it's published, uh, I forget the journal, but they did, her name's Agberg, A-G-E-B-E-R-G. And so, and she did this blind hop where they had them like jump as far as you can, then jump as far as you can with your eyes closed. And our ACL patients, they jump, they don't jump as far as the controls when they put their eyes closed. That delta between the eyes open and eyes closed is less. And then, so just chalked it up with, you know, they're a little more timid, they're relying more on their attention or whatever. But what we see is like neurophysiologically, your brain starts to shift from a proprioceptive strategy to maybe there's a visual strategy. But what's weird about the visual strategy, it's not the areas of your brain that just let you see or navigate the world or like what you're looking at. That plays a role. But it's really areas of your brain that try to match where are you proprioceptively with where are you visually. And it doesn't even have to be visually. It could just be your attention or what you're thinking about or like mental recitation. So it doesn't have to be what your eyes are looking at, but it could just be what you're thinking about as well. Because all of those regions that do the sensory process are also highly connected to your frontal cortex, which allow you to plan movement and everything else. And so it's a little more complicated than just like you're just staring at your knee all the time, which is something they sell patients do. Um, but it's a little more nuanced than that. So that was the big shifts we found. And so since then, to a series of other studies, and so we've tried to investigate some other technologies like stroboscopic glasses, virtual reality, different ways to get feedback, try to manipulate the neural activation pattern. And I'm kind of at this crossroads now of do we try to get our ACL patients to look like controls or do we try to facilitate this adaptation? And I don't have an answer just yet. Um, but what it looks like is you're probably going to need a bit of a combination. And so the people that do the poorest, that have the worst outcomes, that have the, that are, have the weakest quad strength, that don't return to a quite as high level sport, they tend to have this the most adapted sensory activation strategy. And they're what's called cross-modal processing. It's that processing for perception and vision that they picture way to. These to be a little more biased towards vision. And so those patients that aren't doing as well, there's definitely something going on with this shift in sensory processing strategy and then you think about how you prescribe your therapy i mean i did this as a clinician you know the first thing you do is you like think about your knee you try to make a muscle yeah but um your patients probably think about their knee their whole life maybe five minutes but then in therapy you've made them think about it more than they ever have before so that in and of itself is inducing its own neuroplasticity so it was a lot kind of no, that's awesome. And I, I think you went into like perfect depth there of, of background and, and uh, kind of how to, how to think about these things. So that that's what I'm, I'm pretty interested in is you see some of these changes like the cerebellum, uh, d decreased activity, motor cortex, you know, increased activity and, and these cross modal areas like the lingual gyrus is, is what you're alluding to. Uh, uh, is that correct? Yeah. And then um, Cody Chris, one of my students, he did another study where we didn't just look at the activity but how the brain is connected during the movement. So you have this right. idea of like, what is turning on to do this new movement? You know, and there's this other technique, go, how are the brains connected together? And the connection, connectivity sounds like, oh, it's complicated maybe. All it is is like, 
is this area turning on at the same time as this area? And the more in sync they are, the more connected, the less right. they are less connected. So like your sensory cortex and your motor cortex, more connected, right? Um, your cerebellum and like your frontal cortex, maybe less connected. So what he found was, so lingual gyrus is indeed one of the regions that's more biased towards vision and this cross-modal processing. He also found that, and Meredith is always onto this region as well, uh, Dr. Chapu, who was one of my students who's gonna graduate this year. She's really into this more sensory integrative process, which is in the precuneus superior parietal lobe. So we see some altered connectivity to those regions. And then also to the frontal cortex, which helps you plan movement, think about where you want to go, what you're focused on, what you're dedicating your conscious attention to. And so it sort of cascades from there. You have this initial shift in your neural activity, then it cascades into this changes in connectivity to other sensory and cognitive regions. Right. Yeah, so so then we we see these athletes, and and you can correct me at any point if I'm uh, if, if I'm misspeaking, but we get these athletes who who tear their ACL, and they lose that afferent information, right? Because the ACL has so many mechanoreceptors in it, uh, it, it kind of tells us where that joint is, where our knee is in space, and kind of helps um, integrate those movements without us consciously thinking about it. And when that's injured and repaired, we no longer have. Uh, as much afferents or as much uh, mechanoreception coming up to the brain. So we rely on those visual uh, markers and, and kind of other markers instead of our sensory motor system. Um, and that's where those adaptations are happening. And, I, and then it's interesting because, like you said, we go to therapy and we go through rehab. And now every single exercise and, and every single uh, thing we do, our, our vision may be locked on our knee or in one area in space and our cognition as well is locked in on, on, you know, don't let your knee move. Don't let it cave in, uh, like move it out to this the position uh, and all this stuff. So, um, this is where I'm interested now. Cause you, you kind of suggested maybe it be, would be good to feed into that compensation versus, uh, move them back towards kind of a control that doesn't think about where their knee is in space and, and kind of has this more autonomous autonomous process of um, moving fluidly without thinking about it or relying on vision as heavily. Uh, so you, you care to kind of expand on that um, and, and maybe just some thoughts. And, and So what I more mean, like not so much going into the compensation, I would still recommend not, not describing therapy, how we describe it at all, but more making your visual process maybe faster and more efficient. Okay. So there's this idea that if you change therapy, so you like dual task someone and you make it so they can't use cognition or direct attention on the joint anymore. And so one thought is, well, I'm going to not let you compensate with this visual cognitive processes that you would normally do. Now, what happens is either you have two paths neurophysiologically. One is, well, I'll get just more efficient at that compensation. Like I'll still use it, but I'm going to be processing faster and I can right. handle it. So that's good because they can handle sport again, maybe. Or the other one is they'll stop compensating and maybe use a more sensory proprioceptive strategy that they're supposed to use. So there's one thought, well, how can I make people use like a cerebellar regulated strategy? Well, it's very hard to just tell someone, hey, use your cerebellum to land. It's very difficult. It's probably impossible. So you probably have to occupy the system they're compensating with, which would be a cortically driven or like a conscious control strategy. So if you take away their attention regulation the movement, then in theory, you should force them to use like cognitive or sorry, cerebellar regulated movement. But what's interesting with our data so far, so we have this longitudinal study, we're trying to figure out the temporal 
timing of all these neuroplastic changes. What we're seeing there is like that first early stage. We're actually, so what I originally expected was early after the injury, you'd have all this sensory neuroplasticity happen. Pecunious lingual gyrus increase in activity to support this shift from a proprioceptive to maybe a visual strategy. And when I say visual strategy, again, it doesn't always mean they're looking at their knee or they're visually seeing it, but it could be what they're like visually, they're mentally representing in their brain. It could be just what they're thinking about. It could be attention, but not related to where their vision is. Like for instance, I could be talking to you, looking at you, but right. I could be thinking about what degree my knee is in space, my full extent and my bat, where they're at. And so what's weird about these cross-modal regions is they're also connected to those just mental representation areas. So it could it might not even be a direct visual thing, but you're dedicating like more brain power to just knowledge of where you are in space visually instead of proprioceptive. Because you can use, you can make up with a lot of, with just visual memory where you are in space. People, what a lot of people assume is a proprioceptive ability might actually be just visual memory ability. Mm. And so when we test proprioception, we think we are, we have people close their eyes, like produce movement and produce movement again. There's actually some interesting work showing you actually have some visual activity. So you're probably reconstructing the environment in your arm position from visual memory and not just relying all on proprioception. So, where are we going? Oh, so the idea is do you want to go full tilt into the compensation or avoid it? So, the one thing is you would, you probably want to do a combination of the two where you try to make the system more efficient, but you also can try to avoid it as best you can. And what I meant earlier with, the, with our data, so I originally thought you get the sensory neuroplasticity early, and then all the rest would come later. So, with months of therapy, that's when you would get the shift in cognitive processing, cerebellar motor processing, but it'll start with sensory. And we're actually seeing the opposite, where early it's the cognitive frontal regions are increasing activity to move your leg. So this could be one of two, maybe three reasons. One is to do the task in the fMRI early, it's just harder. Right. So you have to dedicate more attention to give more neural drive. So the best way to increase your performance or maintain performance in the presence of much scale deficits is just to focus on it more. And so if you're um, like, if you're trying to fight through fatigue and you're trying to hold a contraction, you'll fail if you take your attention off of it, if you're very, very fatigued. And so if you, the best way to improve performance and maintain is just to dedicate more attention to horsepower. So they could be doing that or the, all the rehabilitation and that focus of attention on the joint for those first few months is encouraging this strategy. And then it could be that visual stuff all comes later that it's a, like a developed compensation and maybe the sensory insult isn't as large as we think it is. I mean, the ACL is only three to 10% mechanoreceptors that give you any kind of neural drive, sort of there's some variability on the estimates. And so it's not that big a representation. Now there are studies in animal models where if you inject tracers into the ACL, you'll pick them up in the sensory cortex. So there's definitely neural fibers in there that are represented in the sensory cortex. But the degree of deafferentation, it's probably a little mixed. So you're looking at you know, 3 to 10%, and there's some studies showing that it might be similar to like 10% of an amputation, like some of the sensory organization. So that might be driving some of the effects is where I'm going with this, as large as just the, the behavior of the patient and their constant attention on the joint. And 
it's sort of like we talked about earlier, Kevin, it's sort of mind-boggling that we thought of it this way. If you think about the, the specific adaptations to oppose demands, I know we talked about this before. Yep. Like your muscles will adapt to the stress you place on them. Everyone accepts this, right? No one has a problem with this. It's a very, it's as close to a law of human physiology as we have for anything. And your system will adapt to whatever you place on it, right? Right. If you keep lifting a certain amount of weight, eventually your system will adapt and you, and you can do it. And then you can add more and you can adapt to that stress. This is like fundamental law of anything. But for some reason, when it comes to like neural processing, we just throw it out the window. And we're like, well, I need to get you to join high quadriceps sports in all these constraints of sport. But then we just ignore it. And we're just like, well, let's just have you isolately focus on developing this muscle strength without all of this extra attentional demand. So yeah, you'll get really good under those constraints, but your performance will go down when you change them. And so this idea where if our athletes can move perfectly with their full attention on it, that'll magically transition or that dish will carry forward. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know why it's taking a decade of neuroscience research for us to figure this out. It sort of makes right. sense, but uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I guess that, I mean, it's such a good point. And, and maybe you can, uh, you know, talk about some different rehab interventions or techniques that have been done uh, traditionally that maybe don't address some of these things and then how you can change them or uh, layer on different things. Uh, maybe some of these new interventions that you are suggesting that can help with these neuroplastic changes um, and, and throughout the, the rehab continuum too, whether it's early on or later stages, uh, I think that would be helpful as well. Sure. So the big thing to get out of the way first is that a lot of the stuff we'll talk about does it really apply if your patient has these fundamental deficits? So what we see is the patients that are the weakest, have the poorest outcomes, they have the biggest shift and they rely the most on visual and frontal regions to generate knee movement. So the neuroplasty is far worse if you don't redo the fundamentals. So what we're going to talk about are like adjuncts to those. So if you're having progress in the key areas of strength recovery, range of motion, then you can layer these on. But if you don't get the basics, then this, none of this will really matter. So that's always a key caveat. So you shouldn't waste therapeutic time on trying to figure a lot of this out if you're not doing the basics. The flip side of this is a lot of what we'll suggest is an augmented approach, whereby we're not going to drastically change your fundamental therapy. You're just going to augment it with a slight tweak. So to give you an example, you might plan out your whole strategy. So you might say, I want to do 10 minutes of range of motion and then 10 minutes of strength work, whatever it is, and I have these 10 exercises I want to do today. My first layer I'd always recommend is go through and think about where the athlete's attention is, what their brain essentially doing during that exercise. And then can I manipulate it to either, one, avoid them directing focus of attention onto their leg, or occupy their attention in some way. So. Very simple things you think about is like this dual task literature is very common. So in neural populations, it's very common to do a lot of dual task training because they figured out long before orthopedics figured out that my patient has to essentially engage in constant dual tasks to interact with the world. You're walking and talking, you're thinking about something else as you're navigating the world. You're not using a lot of neural horsepower to just walk around. You're using it to think about everything else. So if you are training in such a way or you have to dedicate your full attention on just moving, you're not going to be very functional. And so they figured that out a long time ago. It's pretty much standard of care for a lot of neurorehabilitation. So you must take that out into orthopedic rehabilitation. 
because the fundamental tasks of daily life or support of whatever it is are, are really different based on the patient. They still want right. to activity. And so what we start with initially is is we try to give therapy and we encourage people to use what's called an external focus of attention. So the modal learning class example of external focus of attention is um, where they're focused on the outcome of the movement. So this would be like hitting a bullseye in darts, whereas internal focus of attention would be focused on like getting good elbow extension to throw the dart. So we sort of modify and call like external visual focus of attention, where you try to take their visual attention away from the joint. And so you might tell them instead of doing the short arc quads and just doing them, you might try to encourage them to hit a certain target in the air. And so you try to take their visual attention away. This is the most basic fundamental manipulation. You could probably redesign every therapeutic exercise you prescribe and put their attention in the environment away from their joint. That's like the easiest thing to do. So that's like level one. The next thing you can progress to is you try to add a cognitive task, preferably that's visually mediated. So you don't want them to count backwards by sevens from 100. That's a dual task, but it's not going to give you the same, it's not going to target the same processing that's at, that's at issue here. So it will be like cognitively more challenging, sure, but you really want it visually mediated to try to hit this cross-modal processing problem. And so if you can make it sports-specific, that's even better. So some football teams, um, now they have big projectors in their clinics, and they'll have game footage playing. They'll have someone do an exercise and say, can watch the film, and then the the therapist just stops the game footage, and then he'll say, where's this player going to go next, next player, next player, next player. So it's trying to keep you engaged in like, game theory, game movements, sport-specific predictions during the exercises. Then you can also use a lot of different virtual reality tools for this. So we, um, we have a, a beta version of an Android app people can use. Um, we're not a programming lab, though, so it's something we're just trying to use everything we've used in our lab and put it in there so people can use it. Then you can set the number of reps, set the speed. Then you could do different exercises like straight leg raises while kicking a soccer ball or different things. So you try to take visual attention away. And your real goal is to think about think about what your athlete's brain is going to have to do on the field. They're going to have to manage a lot of different attentional stimuli and have good motor performance. So you're just trying to replicate that. And then your end stage, your end goal is to have them move without any attention dedicated to the task. This is what we call like implicit control of movement or autonomous stage of movement. And so at the end, we would recommend that you do a lot of return to sport tests under similar conditions because you're in the same amount of jump distance, quadriceps power, whatever it is, under these sort of constraints. So that's sort of what we recommend as a global like revisement. So you write out your rehabilitation and then you go through every exercise. How can I manipulate them to have this sort of avoiding the compensation? It could be very simple as I'm just going to instruct them to focus on something in the environment. It's very easy all the way to very complicated dual task scenarios. Or you can use technology, virtual reality, gyroscopic glasses, a lot of different things. And you shouldn't do that to do it every exercise. So if you have one set where you're like, we're going for maximum squats or leg presses or whatever, it's not the time to add this stuff. Right. Um, if you're just doing warm-up stuff, you're doing basic on table exercise stuff that's very safe, and then I would encourage you heavily to add this stuff. Yeah, and I think that's... One thing I, I like about this stuff is it, it it's like you said, it's augmenting current therapy. It doesn't take increased time or resources all that much. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out how to apply them clinically uh, and getting good at these things and, and starting to layer on. So I, I think that it, it makes it super easy to, to do and can be really effective in uh, addressing some of these neuroplastic changes. 
Um, the one thing I am curious about is, you, you so know, you just froze for a little bit there. Yeah. I, I think that it's going to be fine. I think it just kind of okay. caught back up. I think we should be good. Okay. Just check. Yes. Thank you. Um, one thing I am curious about with this is we're addressing specific neuroplastic changes because of an injury. Um, and ultimately a lot of these ACL injuries are, um, like sensory mismatches, right? Where, where we're not predict, we're predicting something is going to happen and, and something, and something doesn't happen in the way we predict it. Um, should we be doing some of this stuff, this neuromuscular training in healthy athletes? And and, and what should that kind of look like? Because, you know, I, I think about, you know, like Kyler, Kyler Murray's most recently, uh, most recent injury. Uh, he wasn't even like doing anything crazy. It was kind of a, a, a nice, easy cut uh, while going upfield. Um, and he tore his ACL. And it, it, I know that you've talked about before, it's a sensory mismatch uh, or prediction error. Um, and so like how much of this we should we be doing with healthy athletes or should we be restructuring kind of our training with healthy athletes? It's a good question. And this is something that's very, this is even more preliminary than the post-injury. So post-injury, we have a lot more studies done. Um, Pre-injury is a lot harder to do because we have to get people before their injuries. So we need a little huge sample size. We have to figure out, use their brain data. Or we can look at people that are high risk for injury, people who like move with high injury risk patterns. They basically like land with their knees collapsing together. They move with this injury risk profile. So we've done both of those studies, but nowhere near to the as many as in the post-injury cohorts. So what you're alluding to is what we find is that those that go on to injury have this depressed connectivity between the central cortex and the cerebellum. So what this pathway essentially does, it allows you to correct for um, Prediction errors. So what's really interesting with what the cortex does, your cortex is larger, this prediction machine. And so we, there's been a lot of debate, like trying to understand what the cortex does, the fundamental structure. And the most compelling theory that fits most of the data is your cortex is generating like a representation of the world for every area that it's in. And then you're looking for violations to that prediction. And so there's another body of psychology called ecological psychology, which claims that that's not what you're doing and you are mostly are responding to the environment. But over the last five to 10 years, that the data just simply doesn't support that any longer. And there's a lot of really compelling data that you have this mix of two things that really provide you movement. You have your prediction of the world and its accuracy. There's some noise in it because not all of our sensors aren't perfect. And the information you're getting, feedback. All right, so if you're going to rely on feedback mechanism, that's fine for slower movements. So it's got to be less than 50 milliseconds, probably. You get spinal reflexes about that level, right? But if you want like a cortically driven reflex where you're really thinking about it, you like look at like 200 milliseconds on the fast side. And there's some other stuff in between, but just so say 50 milliseconds. So we know the injury event happens a little faster than that usually. And that's the time for the muscles to just generate muscle activity, not to generate enough force to help protect you. And every millisecond, you're not generating muscle activity to prevent the leg from going to position that loads the ligament. You gotta drain all the more force to make up for it. So you're just in a worse and worse position. So that's what kind of sucks about physics is that everything's moments. And so moments is the force times the lever on. So if you're thinking about knee valgus, 
every millimeter more valgus, it's exponentially more force on the joint, right? So this is a terrible situation. That means every millisecond delayed you are, more valgus until your glutes come on to save you, it's going to be that much harder for them to rip you back and, and save you. And so if the sensor, and we know that we have this prediction versus feedback issue, there's a lot of really cool studies where they'll have people like be reaching for something or walking over and over. And you build a model of the world and you slowly change something about it. And you look at the time it takes you to readapt and like update your predictions. And the sensory cerebellar pathways allows you to correct for these issues. So the sensory cortex, essentially, what happens is you go to move. Right, so I generate a movement. You generate an efferent copy of the movement. Actually, let me back up a little bit. You perceive the world. Think about it simply, and then you go to move, right? So you have this mental prediction of the of you where you are in space with all your proprioceptors. You have all this machinery in the parietal to visual cortex trying to integrate where you are in space with your environment, your visual environment. There's all this cross-modal processing that gets disrupted after ACLA. So you go to move. Your motor cortex sends an efferent copy to your sensory cortex. It says, hey, this is the command I just sent down. Anything's not right with what you, I sent, with what you get back, you need to fix it. The cerebellum allows you to fix it because it's connected to the, to the sensory cortex. So the sensory cortex is waiting. All right, so I got this prediction of the world, and I'm waiting for this motor plan. Now, if it comes back and everything's copacetic, you know, everything looks pretty good, you go on with your day, everything's fine. You have low neural activity. It's a very efficient response. All right. So there's any sort of error. Well, the cerebellum comes online to try to help you correct for this. So you probably have this phenomenon. You ever like walk down the stairs, you think there's another step, you walk down the street, you hit a rock or whatever. You don't fall flat on your face right. most of the time. You generate another step. You generate some sort of corrective motor plan. That's due to your sensory cerebellar pathway. It's what allows the cerebellum helps you generate the movement to engage the correction. You don't look down and go, Oh my God, I fit something I'm going to need to put on a foot. You don't like think about how you're going to move. You just do it. And that's largely subconsciously driven, driven by the cerebellum. So our people who went on the ACL injury, this pathway is much lower connectivity than those who don't go on injury. So what's so this brings the begs this question of how do I get more connectivity between these two pathways? Or between the sensory cerebellar pathway. And now I don't know if the player you mentioned has this. Um Maybe it has low connectivity or not. It could just be like a lot of factors. And the activity will fluctuate too, like it goes up and down over the time. And so you probably just want to increase it generally. So the best way to increase functional connectivity is to get to two regions to co-activate more. So for instance, like your S1 of your hand and your M1 of your hand, so your sensory cortex, your motor cortex of your hand, very highly connected. They're used to activating together. Now, the sensory and cerebellum, sensory cortex cerebellum are harder to activate together. So what you have to do, you have to find ways to induce motor corrections to unexpected sensory failed predictions. And so this can be difficult, and there's not really many studies on this. So this is like where we get with the literature. You get to this point where I have a concept for you. I don't have an RCT to tell you if this will right, work yet. right. Now, the RCD for this might be easier to do. There's a lot of ways you go with it. And so one is there's been some interesting work with metronomes. People do metronome training where, so say you're doing three sets of 10, instead of just doing them on their own pace, you set some metronome at a certain pace, and they have to try to hit that pace. And so now you're forcing a motor response to a sensory event. Now 
say the first set you do every second, then maybe you increase it to 1.1 seconds or whatever. And now you're forcing a correction to an unanticipated sensory prediction. So you might get co-activation in that scenario. Anything that involves timing seems to have potential here because the cerebellum will highly regulate motor responses to precise timed events. So inducing a timing can be helpful. Manipulating the timing might be even more helpful. The third way to do it is to induce sensory prediction errors. So you could use like error X and stuff like that. The problem is they're not totally unpredicted because you kind of know you're on an unstable surface. Sure. So that's a little more difficult. But if you can put them on a rollerboard on a stable surface and then induce unanticipated predict perturbations, that should increase the connectivity. And so you might put a band around the knee or give them trunk perturbations, something like that. But they can't know it's coming. They can't know which direction it's coming. So you have to have them relax and you have to deliver them. So you might have to do them eyes closed. It would be tricky somehow. Or the last thing you can do is try to minimize of as much cognitive attention on the movement. So say you're doing landing neuromuscular training. You could apply the same things you do in rehab where you do a lot of dual tasking. So you remove their ability to use a tensional strategy. And you may force a sensory cerebellar one, but that one's a little bit more indirect. You're just kind of avoiding something that they could use instead. Sure. But the other things are probably more efficient. So I'm curious then on the on the like the kind of wobble board or unstable surface that you mentioned because this is something I've spoken to to Meredith about too and and you you know you, you, when you mention kind of the unstable surface and perturbation you I, like my brain automatically automatically goes to some of like Kevin Wilk stuff right where right. where he's perturbating perturbating in so many different directions and one of the the challenges I, that have come up with that is you're just going to cognitively you know like lock down degrees of freedom you're going to create kind of this just co-contraction around the joint to create that sense of stability um, versus kind of exploring those degrees of freedom, but having dynamic stability. Uh, do you see a problem with that? Is that just a way you would set up the exercise and, and cue it? Or, or is that kind of a challenge of the exercise itself? So if I were to do it, I would make them relax their muscles as much as possible toward the perturbations and make them do engage in a response. Um, now, depending on the aggressiveness of the perturbation, you get away with it, so you got to use your head. You know, you don't want to, like, truck someone having them be in a total Shove them off, state, right. right? Yeah. So, you know, be smart with it. There are some interesting um, technologies in this space. There's a, a company called MediTouch, M-E-D-I Touch. They have this treadmill, which if you're walking, they're trying to get it up to jogging and running. I'd like to do that. Um where it'll just like move underneath you and you're in a harness so you're totally safe. Mm -hmm. And so what's good about this is you're walking. So you have, you can't just be like stiffen up and be stable because you have to keep moving because you're on a treadmill. Right. And then I'll just like move the surface and then reset it. And you're in the, in the harness, so you're not going to get hurt. And you, and what it's good about it is it just forces you to take another step, a corrective step. So it's enforcing you to take a, a, a correction. Now the name that is, compelling for a sensory prediction training idea but what we really need for acl injury is like what looks like happens a lot is they expect their they're going to say they're going to cut right and they probably think their foot is right under their knee but maybe it's like three or four centimeters more lateral and so now their knee is just over their inside of their foot instead of right over the middle of their foot and so the sensory prediction was foot right over the knee, right under the knee. And that requires a certain amount of glute 
activity to maintain, and then they change direction. But for whatever reason, they're distracted, the field surface is a little off, their cleats, whatever. They're a few centimeters lateral. And so that's a failed prediction. Now you still have a chance to prevent the injury. Sensory cerebral cortex activates together. Sensory cortex goes, hey, but that efferent copy is not matching where we are now. You need to generate a, a correction immediately. And you'll generate a, a correction and activate your glutes a little more and you'll be fine. And no one will ever know. This is how you can do the movement a thousand times and never have an injury. Sure. But that one time it fails. And so a lot of the training is just to increase connectivity there and decrease the probability of failure. But it could happen at any time. So now, now I'm thinking about like the... Sorry. No, you're oh. good. No, you're good. Now I'm thinking okay. about kind of the Sorry. the uh, the exposure issue, right? Where yeah. in a sense, like it, the more you do that, the better your brain's going to get at kind of connecting those two areas. But then kind of, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the, the more exposures you have, uh, you're putting yourself more at risk, obviously. Um, so it, it, can, can you do a lot of this just from you know training uh, in those situations or, or is that kind of not going to create those sensory errors? prediction errors in a, in a safe environment. What do you kind of think about that? Good question. So, we're here on this thing. so when I was thinking about the treadmill, the problem is it's another step correction, not a like in the moment glute like activation. Correction. So inducing like sure. in the moment corrections could be a little trickier. But um, to your next point, I think it could come from like, uh, you do like graded exposure to exercise or slow return to sport. So after injury, that's a little more set in place. You know, you do phases of recovery and phases of return. One issue that you might get. So there's been a lot of these ideas, like you need a certain amount of neuromuscular readiness. So in healthy athletes, like if you see like really good people on the cutting edge of like pediatric um, neuromuscular development or sport training. So probably the best practitioners, they focus a lot on these, I have to have these fundamental movements. Like you have to be able to like, you can use the FMS as a correlator, but I want to see these really good movement patterns first. And then I'll let you do body weight exercises. And then I'll let you do this sort of these sort of movements and with with resistance. And they watch your flexibility. And so there's an idea that you could progress people along this this curriculum or this dynamic, and they would do better. And you could even think of it like just exposure to the varied responses in youth might help you. Like there's a lot of interesting data that some of these sensory prediction errors or how the ACL brain activates looks a lot like these kids with coordination development disorder. These kids are just really clumsy and don't control right. their bodies very well. So it's almost like there may be something exposure early on might help you in a safe, controlled manner. So I would almost think of it like physical education in that way. If we could find ways to integrate this into normal physical exercise, then then you might be able to avoid some of this and not just like go back to sports. Because if you think about just like going out and playing soccer, you know, that's a pretty big jump from if you're, especially if you're not doing a lot of other activities. Right. And you might be cardiovascular ready, you might be strength wise ready, but this aspect probably deserves some consideration. Now, I don't think it's like 50% of the consideration, but it should be a, probably a portion of people's readiness for sport. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that begs another question. Um, through development, I think that this plays such a big role in kind of 
our, our athletic success and maybe injury risk too. Um, what role do you think uh, play in, in childhood or like free play or, or movement exploration uh, kind of plays within athletic success and in mitigating injury risk going forward? Yeah, that's kind of a hot topic right now. And I, I am kept up on the literature for it. like sports specialization gets talked about a lot. Sure. And I mean, you, you kind of have, it's tough. So like people, you have examples on both sides where people who have, like you have, uh, what is David Epstein's book range about having like yep. a variety of skills, a lot of exposure does better. But then there are some sports where it's the opposite. Like you have, you know, the Tiger Woods golfing. He was four, became the greatest golfer on the planet. Yeah. He got hurt, but he, you know, he dominated a sport for 10 years. Sure. And people were like, oh, he got hurt or back pain because he didn't do any other sports when he was a kid. And I'm like, I don't know anyone who does anything at that level for 20, 30. I mean, whatever. I don't think that. Yeah. I think he was probably yeah. going to wear down eventually. Right. So I thought that was a little ridiculous of an idea. Um, and then like Roger Federer is the range example where he played every other sport and then came to tennis. And Epstein would say, well, it kind of depends on your sport, right? Um, tennis is a wicked sport. You're mm -hmm. against another opponent. It's unpredictable. And so it's kind of interesting. So if you get Epstein's book, um, he makes this case that the more unpredictable the game is and the less that's in your control, the better it is to have exposure to varied scenarios, which makes some sense. And the less wicked a sport is like golf, then it doesn't really matter as much because everything's in your control. You just get really good at that one thing. It doesn't mm -hmm. You don't need this robust sensory prediction algorithm. Now, he doesn't go into the neurophysiology. So what I get from it is that Roger Federer, in theory, has more robust sensory predictions of varied environments and ability to make corrections than maybe Tiger Woods did because he's been exposed to more. So I think where you're going is reasonable. But on the flip side to this, um, the guy who just won the Nobel Prize in Medicine, Artem, he won it for discovery of the PIEZO 1 and 2 mechanoreceptor in the cell. So he figured out how cells encode for mechanosensation. It's a fundamental, massive breakthrough, right? What that means, though, and a lot, some of it is genetically regulated in some of this work, so that means your fundamental ability for mechanosensation is genetically regulated. And if, that, if you accept that everything cascades up from the cell, then in theory, like proprioception coordination is going to be in part inherited. Mm. So I haven't, I thought of, I haven't been really sure what to make of this. So there is some inner studies showing like ACL injuries are highly heritable. Interesting. And people have only looked at these collagen receptors. And collagen, the collagen heritability and the collagen genetics explain a good chunk of the heritability genetics, right? A lot has to do with the integrity and elasticity and strength of your collagen, which makes sense what the ligament is. No one's looked at this, well, it's because the genetic transcripts have just been found. Um, recently, but no one's really looked at heritability of these other genetic factors, which may be playing a role, like your ability to engage coordinated movement or perceive movement or engage in sensory processing. So that could be something there. And you kind of see it, like parents that tend to be coordinated, you know, how, how well are kids or parents that were athletes, you know? I don't know. That's something I've been sort of thinking about for a while, but I'm not really... So now I'm curious, because so, you've got a little one now uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who's starting to move around a lot. And, and I think that He's development does play a, a big role in kind of this stuff. So 
I don't know if you're kind of nerding out about his development or, or how you're playing about this. And sure, it's going to depend on his success, our interests and everything going growing up. But is there a way you can kind of, in your mind, optimize some of this stuff, uh, athletic development or, or injury risk? And, and how, how are you kind of thinking about that for, for your little one? So I sometimes do. Then my wife catches me and, you know, she's like, just let him be a kid. Right. You know? So, uh, you know, I, I think about it some, I mean, there are critical development windows and periods and kind of things you want them to see do, but uh, I don't know, I think you really, it almost detracts from it a little bit. So I try not to do too much of it. I want to see him like move well. He's super high energy, so he's crazy all over the place. But you know, I think you want to be a little careful mixing too much of it. And I'll see when he's a little older. He's, he's only 18 months, so he's, he's not quite. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, he talked a little bit. But, uh, yeah, you do watch for, I do see how, like, how he moves. And, like, he walks a little bit more knee and hip external rotation. You know, so I'm like, is that normal? Kind of, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I try to Get out of your head a little bit when, when you're with him. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. No, absolutely. Uh, cool. So I, I think we talked a lot about, your ACL research. Um, uh, I am curious about a few other things. I know you've got some, some, some interesting thoughts just about neuroscience life, everything. So um, I, I know you do some pretty interesting stuff just day to day, like uh, that we've <laughs> figured out along the way where you, you know, when you walk to work, you, you study French uh, and, and you'll try some stuff kind of with your non-dominant hand or like take different routes to work. Uh, what, what's kind of the thought process behind this? Is it just keeping the brain healthy? Uh, uh, what are you kind of thinking with that? Okay, so some of that comes from people that are doing, so I almost consider what we do in like orthopedic PT or what this neuroscientist very like niche, it's very much trying to just help people with injuries, but like there's people trying to solve like real problems and like in medicine, right? Like Alzheimer's and stuff like that. So. French thing was because uh, I was just going there for a comment, so I wanted to learn. But I do try to listen to it and try to learn on my walks, and so I try to multitask there. But a lot of that data is from the Alzheimer's literature. And really, if you just try not to, if you never stop moving, you have a good chance of staving it off. That, that's probably your best, your best scenario. Um, so yeah, you're doing like brushing your teeth, you're down at end and taking different routes. And some of that is, if you look up like neural pruning, um, at different areas of neuroplasticity. Like if you do the same thing, same exposure every time, some interesting data that, that may contribute to some of the neural decline you see in some of these conditions. And so if you're in an area where you just have too much repetition, um, one issue for that is this idea called neural efficiency. So neural efficiency is you want less activity to the movement. Normally that's good. And so like our ACL patients, they lose neural efficiency to move. It requires more cortical activity to do the same movement. You can only increase motor cortex due to so much so you have a coordination there and you collapse. So you can only handle so much complexity. So for instance, say you're learning piano, learning guitar, learning an instrument. To do one chord requires like all of your motor cortex activity to coordinate everything, right? But then you do it for a week and you get a little bit better at that. So you get an adaptation to your imposed demand. And now you only need 50% of your M1 activity to do that same chord, whatever. Um, it's arbitrary, it's probably not really what it is. And then you can learn another one. But then now to do two of them takes everything you got, right? And then slowly over time. And then eventually you can play a whole song and dedicate very little motor cortex activity to do it. Get more right. neurologic efficient. 
lot of times because you regulate stuff to your base game lifts, your bell becomes some quarterly regulated. The big part of that, though, is all of your predictions are accurate all the time. Because you've gotten really good at generating the motor plan and executing your efferent copy matches the sensory prediction. Very little neural activity. Now, that's great over time. But the, what's interesting with the Alzheimer's and the neural decline work is that if you get really too much neural efficiency, you won't get enough neural activity. No neuro, no neuroactivity, neurons die. You don't have as much metabolism. You need neural activity to bring blood flow to the area to have neural metabolism to clear away waste. Mm. So if you're not activating neurons, then it could be bad. So if you just do the same thing all the time, have no exposure to information, so you have less neural activity, your life will be easier, be really not much efficient, but you might set yourself up to have neural decline. So, like you're a small town in Athens, that's why you want to take different directions or whatever, different ways. Try to do things with your other hand that you get used to doing. I had one uh, colleague, he, every day he would flip his mouse to the other side. And uh, I tried to do it for a day, it gave me fucking headache, so I stopped doing it. But people do stuff <laughs> like this, so you could kind of mess around with it. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Okay, yeah. I, I'm going to have to try and uh, go brush my teeth tonight with my with my left hand and see how it goes. I'm sure that'll be fun. <laughs> You'd be shocked how it is. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm, I'm curious with, with all these things we've talked about and, um, you know, you, you've mentioned that when you were a, a clinician and you were working with these athletes that, um, you know, you, you wish you could have been better and, and it was hard to, um, deal with the intellectual and emotional trauma of, of get, having these athletes get re-injured and everything. Uh, if, if you were to go back now and treat, uh, what would you kind of change? What would you do differently? How would you kind of approach things differently or, or what's kind of the biggest takeaway at, at this point that you would take back into practice? I would probably change everything about my therapy. I feel like I did all these people a disservice. It's really kind of disappointing. And I'm really kind of upset that it took like a lot of neuro data to like figure this out. Cause in hindsight, like we talked about before, the athlete's going to have to generate a lot of muscle force with their attention, not on doing that, not on generating muscle force. So our physiology adapts to the demands. I need to prepare them for this. Very, very simple. But all of therapy for nine months, I let every athlete think about generating high muscle force and staring at it and doing it. And if you just think about your life, like walking, running, playing any sport, doing anything, any ADL, any activity, think about opening the cabinet to get a cup, of, cup right? You don't think about where my hand is in place, I need to come here, I need to pull. No, you think about the object, the goal, the movement, and everything else is just programmed for you. Mm -hmm. What do we do in therapy? You think about the movement and you stare at it and you do it. So... I would revamp all my therapy to try to acknowledge that fundamental thing I'm asking the person to do and try to avoid allowing them to use attention at all times. Now, I might not use VR or stroboscopic glasses or different stuff we do now. Um, I've seen therapists come with all sort of amazing little simple things where they'll use flashcards of colors, of numbers, of uh, one, one pediatric PT had uh, was treating a kid who was really into Pokemon and uh, she had got let him use his Pokemon cards, and uh, he would do his exercises. And every rep, she would go to the next one. He had to like say the counter Pokemon or whatever. Like uh, she said, like there's a fire one, you got to use an earth one or water, or whatever. Right? And so like I was like, oh my god, like how creative is that? And so the kid got really 
really liked it because you know he's like you know six seven what how old he is you know and he gets to like talk about pokemon yeah while he's doing his therapy and he's uh it's just interesting so you could be very creative and not people always think it's like boring dual tasks like numbers or whatever right colors. but you could be as creative as as you can and the pediatric pts are always the most creative sure you know we sure. get away with it with adults because you can just tell them to do it most adults will just do it but um stuff like that i mean i think that would be my fundamental shift and then everything sort of cascades down from there if you realize attention is something i need to manipulate in my therapy i think you can figure the rest of it out i mean most clinicians are pretty smart once you have the idea yeah um, the creativity they come up with is pretty amazing that's awesome. And I think the, the coolest part about that is it's it's not just for ACL patients. It's for patients kind of across the board and therapy across the board. Yeah, I mean, there's similar data that's come out in the last few years, like ankle sprains does a similar thing, yep. shoulder instability. Uh, low back pain does some similar, some different. The thing with low back pain, though, they have a lot of like amygdala, a lot of motion, a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of issues with the spine that's a little unique, partly because you can't see it. It also has this diffuse pain and it's related to posture. So there's a whole ton as anyone who treats low back pain patients, there's a whole like plethora of psychological overlays and stuff with back pain, but they do see this disruption in sensory processing that definitely occurs, but um, any sort of instability condition. So knee, ankle, shoulder, we see it. um, um, Well, definitely all of this applies, which is like the bulk of your orthopedic rehabilitation. Right. Right. Cool. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up here, because I'm sure you've got more meetings and everything in a busy day. I just, I appreciate you. I, I just want to ask, you know, one or two more questions and I, I think sure. they'll be kind of quick ones and, and fun ones. We'll kind of go into the, the lightning round here. Um, and you, you can go as, as deep or as shallow as you want, uh, but you can so kind the of. usual then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. My first one for you is uh, LeBron or Jordan? Jordan. I'm of course. Old. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> who uh who's the best athlete of all time oh my god hmm well this is such a weird couple you could be biased very easily by what you're exposed to by sport oh my gosh i don't know that's tough so do you take like pure sport like uh a track and field guy or something you know i will say do you know who jack dempsey is Mm, yeah yeah the giant slayer yeah boxer yep i might go with them oh that's an interesting one i don't think i've ever heard that one well like if you look at the old boxers like there's an interesting thing with boxing like back in the day dempsey's they used to fight like every weekend you fight like 100 times in a career right and a lot of the defense was so much better because you had these long careers. And so their movement coordination was spectacular. And it's the ultimate in wicked sports, right? Not only are they trying to hurt you, but like your reactions. And like the way Dempsey could move to avoid punches and then deliver punches, he wasn't even that big a guy. I mean, he beat people that were more athletic than him, that were stronger than him. But his sensory predictions were real good. You know, he avoided a lot of injuries or a lot of potential damage. Um, he might be one of the greatest. I don't know. That's a cool question. That's a, that's a good, that's a good answer. I'm I don't think I've heard Dempsey. that one and definitely yeah. relating kind of the, the neuroscience there into your answer, which is awesome. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, 
it's a cool thing if you if you look into like the history of it because like they didn't get the brain trauma you like it today hmm. um when they had really long careers i mean obviously a lot of them had brain trauma and still get hit in the head yeah. but they yeah. would have 10 times the fights they have today and, and he was he was a great one so that's awesome yeah. uh what's something that you would just love to research uh or look into further that we just don't have the technology to do so yet so there's a guy at ucla no he's at caltech doing this jack gallant so he studies consciousness right so these are the guys that are trying to understand fundamentally what makes us human and like, okay. do you have free will is everything determined are we in a simulation? Like these sort of questions, right? There's people legitimately working on these fundamental ideas. And I think if I could do, now I was always interested in like, I sort of fell into everything as kind of, you kind of do early in your life, maybe. It's been a good career and it's interesting and, and medicine's great, but like trying to answer some of these like fundamental questions of of being a human, I think would be pretty cool. Like almost from a philosophical a sense. Well, yeah, like the free will thing is a philosophical sure. layer to it, but more like the fundamental questions of like how the nervous system is organized. Like we don't even mm -hmm. have a good map for how the heck your brainstem keeps your heart beating yeah. all the time. It's like we're trying to answer these really amazing cortex questions and stuff, but like there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. I think that's one thing that we don't give enough credit towards. Like you come out of PT school, you think you could like know you know everything. Sure. And then you realize after a few years, as we know nothing, and <laughs> I mean, we know something. But um, yeah, I think trying to get at a bigger question beyond like the injury model, applied neurophysiology, but like understand more the fund things fundamental to what makes us human would be pretty cool. Hey, maybe by the by the end of your career, you'll have some technology to kind of look into that, and you can kind of go that direction. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, there's a few new technologies coming out, like the decade of the brain that the Obama administration ran through the NIH, like they gave a lot of promising things. But uh, I mean, it, it's going to be tough. We yeah. still haven't really even mapped all the neurons in the human brain yet. So we're still estimating how many cells are in there. We don't even have a technology to get an accurate count. Sure. You know, so we're doing the best we can. All right, last one here. So, what sure. what do you think is the the hardest sport to be good at? Uh, you kind of mentioned boxing and having to, you know, that being mm -hmm. one of the most wicked sports, and then you have something like baseball too, where you've got to hit that kind of projectile at, at a at a perfect time. So, I'm curious what well, you think the the hardest sport to be good at the is. Hardest sport is tough. So it's not boxing because boxing there's no leg kicking, right? So obviously, like more mm. tires, something like that would be harder. Yeah, kickboxing would be a little harder. So you have more degrees of freedom, more potential errors. You would think that'd be harder. Um, I don't know. That's a little simplistic answer, though. Probably, I guess you, you could make an argument. But then they consider hitting the what hitting a hundred mile hour fastball is like the hardest thing to do, right? It's, it's often talked about. It's the hardest mm -hmm. thing in sport. But it's hard for me to put baseball up there because. So when you say the hardest, I think of like training. Mm -hmm. like what can I train for? That's the hardest. So I think what is the most physically or mentally grueling sport to play is when you say when you use that word hardest. Um. Maybe hitting the softball or hitting the baseball at that speed is like the most physiologically challenging task, but I want to say it's the hardest sport hmm. to use that term. And so I would say maybe gymnastics or wrestling or something like that would be very difficult. 
mostly because every wrestler I've ever met is fucking crazy. Are we allowed to curse on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, very you are. Sorry. No, you're good. You're allowed. I'm not to. I probably should ask that two hours ago. No, you're um, good. Because <laughs> they're training. So I think when you say hardest, I think of like, what is the hardest training to do? Um, maybe gymnastics because like if you look at like the guys that do the rings or the mm. parallel bars or any gymnastic sport it's absurd or the pommel horse like you're just inflicting pain like how much pain you know your creatine stores go out you know you just you're how much pain can you endure to hold a position i don't know if it's anything much harder than that this is just you you're not against another opponent sure. like a combat sport you have someone else to push you Sure, but in like a gymnastics sport, you only have you, or like the the flips they do off the board. Yeah, you know, like you just pushing yourself to go harder and harder and harder. That's just against you. So maybe that. That's an awesome yeah. answer. That's a good one. It's a good question. All right, and then the last thing we kind of ask all our yeah. guests, uh, sure. you know, when, when all this is said and done, uh, what what do you want your legacy to be here? That's a cool question. So I saw that in your message, and I've been thinking about that actually a little bit more. And what's interesting when you start, so most, so much of being a scientist is you, it's kind of a unique job because your whole life is like dedicated to it. So I think a lot of people have a picture of like an academic as a pretty cake gig. And right. sometimes it is, I'm not going to lie to you. There's a lot of academics who have really sweet deals, right? But if you really want to solve problems and you want to progress mankind forward, I think being a scientist is a great career, and I've really enjoyed it so far. But it does tend to it can consume your life, and so it's a unique job in that, like when you're a clinician, like I would cover my sports, see my patient, I go home, I'd be done for the day. There's no more work today. I'm done. Right. But in this job, there's always something to work on. I could always be writing the next paper. I could try to collect more data. I try to analyze. Things. I try to figure something out. You're always, if you're awake, you're working almost. Like you, mm -hmm. you could be. You could let it consume your whole life. So when I started out as a PhD student, I thought, well, I'm going to figure this ACL problem out. And then um, it's the Dunning-Kruger thing. You don't know much at the beginning, and then by the end you realize, you know, it's a lot more complicated problem than you go and think it is. Sure. So that's one thing I think clinicians sometimes, if you don't get that exposure to do it, it, it can be surprising why research hasn't been done or thought of something. So at the beginning I thought I would figure it out. Now I've gotten a lot more reserved in what I think I'll complete. And so what I hope to do is I'm really vested in my trainees, so my PhD students. I really want them, they're almost, they're kind of like, in academia, they're kind of like your kids, right? So they're going to do a career based on like what you taught them because the PhD is kind of learning science. It's kind of an apprenticeship program a little bit. And so professionally, I've sort of pivoted more to like, they're probably going to be the ones to actually solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much work to be done, so much to understand. It probably won't, I probably won't have enough time. That's something I've sort of come to terms with to like do it all myself. And so I really hope them or their students will be the ones that really solve this problem. We've come up with the intervention program where if you implement it, there's zero probability of ACL. Because we've solved every contributor to the injury risk that you can. Non-contact injuries, right? Those should be preventable. We'll have yes. to figure that out. And so I've sort of reserved myself to not focus as much on that, and maybe they'll be able to do it. So that's part of it. And then uh, having a kid does reframe it a little bit. So when I was a PhD student, I would like, I had a cot and I would sleep in the lab all the time. 
And what's really weird is like, it'll let you consume your whole life if you let it. So the whole reason we have these conversations over the last few years is because I read more than I had my whole life those four years. Like I had a clip in my shower where I could clip an article on and I would read it when I was like in the shower. Like I was, I don't know, I went a little too far. And so um, having a wife and child, you kind of reevaluate that a little bit. So then you want him to have the best life where you have, have your kid. You want your wife to have a really good life. And so it starts to kind of wonder, like, you have these great scientists who you've probably never heard of, you know, and these people who have published a thousand papers, the NIH has given them $100 million. They've uncovered um, fundamental architecture in the nervous system. Most people have never heard of. It's only like a select few people in like the field that really care and so i sometimes reflect on that you know like that sort of legacy so i would say i hope my students become well-trained as scientists and have a good work-life balance and they have a good life and then uh the same for my wife and son so i've sort of reflected and changed from hoping to solve this problem to accepting it's going to be a longer journey well, that's awesome. And it, it, it's cool to kind of see you reframe everything in that, in that sense. Um, you know, thinking these things are all so important and, and they do have a lot of import in our, in our society and in sports, but the, the bigger picture taking a step back and looking at life and all the people you're kind of spending time with is, is pretty cool to do. So that's a cool little real realization. Um, this is, this has been so awesome. I, I seriously appreciate you coming on. Uh, this is a blast. My pleasure. I know all our talks uh, over the years have, are so fun. Um, so this is cool to kind of record one and, and discuss some of this stuff. Um, th do you want to just kind of throw uh, how people can find you out there, uh, whether it be sure. Twitter, email, whatever the easiest thing is to do? So uh, email is probably easiest at grooms, G-R-O-O-M-S-D, at ohio.edu. I do have a Twitter, uh, Dusty Grooms. I think something like that. Just Google Dustin Grooms at Ohio. Um, I try not to use social media too much because it's kind of a mixed bag of good stuff. Yeah. Stuff that wastes your time. So that's probably not the best way, but I usually respond to emails if people have questions. And then I always send out some materials, our VR app, people want to try it. Um, I really, like you mentioned, Kevin, we really want to try to get this out to clinicians. So if this stays locked in the journals, it's been a waste of time. Yeah. And so if uh, anyone needs help, always happy to, but uh, always great talking to you, Kevin. Yeah, you as well. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Hopefully we can uh, reconnect soon and kind of I can continue to can pick your brain on all this stuff. But Anytime. it was a blast. It was a blast. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. I guess the last thing to say then is never stop moving. The greatest.